Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. Matthew 20. Turn to Matthew 20 with me. And we are going to look at an account that includes all kind of things that we are very familiar with. We're going to see wage disputes. It's going to be management versus employees. It's going to be unfair wages. It's going to be workplace violence almost <laughs> with the discussion that happens. So Matthew 20. As you're turning there, the timing and the setting of this story assumes some very difficult economic circumstances. It's a time when it is tough to find a good job. It's a little like today. It's just tough times, period. And there are day laborers who are standing in the marketplace waiting day by day to be hired day by day. They don't have regular jobs to go to of a morning. And so they hire themselves out to do whatever, to dig a ditch, to pick some crops, to move furniture. Whatever you need done, they will do. It's happening in our tough times too, isn't it? Especially weekends, drive by the Home Depot, and you'll see able-bodied men just hoping for a job there. Well, that's what this situation is like in Matthew 20. Any job for that day would do for these fellas. Uh, the jobs all involve minimum wage. They are all sporadic. In other words, you may have a job today, you may not tomorrow, and there are no guarantees with the job that you get today. No matter how hard you hustled, there was no promise that you would be working for that man again tomorrow. The wage was already set. It was a denarius a day. That was a common wage in that day. Measurement of money, a denarius, a day. That was already set by custom and by law. And coincidentally, that is exactly what it would cost you to run the average home for the day. To provide for your family for one day would be one denarius. And these laborers were making just enough, one denarius, to take care of the family for that day. For that day. It was wages for full days, denarius. Um, for a full day's work, that's what you got. And your family was going to then be able to go on one more day. Now, I'm bringing you this story in Matthew 20 because it will help you to understand the gratitude of some of the late hires in the story. They're doing the work of harvesting, harvesting grapes. That's the work. And here's what the owner was up against. I described to you what the employee was up against, the laborer, but let's look at what the owner was up against. These are the days of pre-refrigerated storage, right? If the grapes in this case stay on too long and don't get picked in time, or if they stay on and they're in good shape, but an early rain comes, it could ruin everything in a day. So they've got to be picked now, and you're going to see as the story unfolds that there is great urgency on the part of the owner that they picked, get picked now, today, not tomorrow. So the harvesting time is a smaller window than 
the grape harvest today. In fact, if you don't get it in on time, then all of the weeding and the fertilizing and the irrigating and the cultivating, all the attention, all the time, all the money is lost. And you are a bankrupt failure and there will be no next season for you. That will happen in one day. So the urgency in getting the harvesting done will, as we will see, determine the need for hiring additional people as the day goes on. Now, we're talking about questions that Jesus asks, and our question that Jesus will ask us is buried deep in the story, and it will come not on his lips, but on the lips of the employer, on the lips of the owner. He will ask our question. Now, before we launch into this particular story, why stories? Why so many stories? Why is the Bible so full of stories? Why does Jesus tell stories? Why is the, the gospel pages filled with stories? Why stories? Stories are for children. With grandkids now, I'm remind, being reminded how stories with kids work. You don't tell the little pigs one time. You get to the end and the big bad wolf has gotten his just reward, and they live happily ever after, you think, until the kid says, again, and you tell the story again. And we think of stories as children's stuff. So why stories? Why Jesus using stories here? It would, it would be wrong, very wrong, to conclude that we have here some pre-rational people that are telling simple stories and that we are the sophisticated modern people who can afford to smile at them because they're just simple, primitive people and stories work for them, but our brains don't need stories. Well, that does not describe the storytellers in Scripture. They were not simple people and they were very rational. And it doesn't describe the gospel writers in particular, they were not primitive people who didn't know any other way to talk but tell stories. One of my favorite writers, he's a Methodist bishop by the name of Will Williman. He says this about stories. He says, story is the fundamental means of talking about and listening to God. Stories. The only human means available to us that is complex and engaging enough to make comprehensible what it means to be with God. You can find out about God in no other way. Doesn't matter how rational your brain is, how analytical, how much you want to take apart doctrines and teachings and scripture, the best way to discover and understand our God is stories. In fact, when your life finally gets caught up in the life of Jesus Christ, story is the only way that you will understand him. Because your story becomes part of his big story. Matthew 20. The top of the chapter, it starts off, kicks off in verse number 1. And Jesus is saying, here's what things are like. Here's what things are like in this new kingdom this new way, this new way of looking at things, this new way of understanding, this, this new kingdom 
Here's what things are like. He says, it's like a landowner who went out early in the morning. He went to the marketplace because there he knew there would be these day laborers. Now, he probably had his regular crew that had cared for and grown the grapes, but now it's harvest time and he needs more hands. And so he goes into the market and there he begins to hire laborers to pick the grapes. He talked to the laborers. They agreed upon a wage, a denarius a day. And then he sent them out. Now go pick grapes. Be quick about it. Got to get that harvest in. He's monitoring their progress, and he sees that though they began about 6 in the morning, that even if they work the 12-hour day, they're not going to get it finished, and he needs it finished. Maybe a storm is coming. Maybe the sun is too hot. We don't know, but he needs to get it done by nightfall. And so he goes back into the marketplace along about 9 a.m., and he says the same thing to the day laborers that are standing there. I need you. And in this case, he says, as they begin to dicker about wages, because they're going to only work part of the day now, he begins to tell them, he assures them, listen, you go out there and you work for me, and I promise you whatever is right, whatever is right, I will pay you. And so they go. He's monitoring again. I need more hands. So he goes out again about noon. He goes out at 3, does the same thing, and he tells them, go out into my field and get busy. Bring in the harvest, and whatever's right, I will pay you. There's one hour of daylight left. It's 5 p.m. now. And he sees even with this great crowd of pickers, he's not going to make it. And so he goes back, and there he finds some more. Pick it up at verse number 6. And about the 11th hour, that would be 5 o'clock. He went out, and he found others standing around, and he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? You're a King James lover. Why stand ye idle all the day long? And they said to him, because nobody hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And he gives them the same assurance, and whatever is right, I will pay you. And when evening came, six o'clock now, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers. And pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. The five o'clock hires first, then the three o'clock, then the noon, then the nine, then the six o'clock in the morning hires. Do it in that order, he said. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius, a full day's wage. And eventually, when those that had been hired at 6 o'clock came and they saw that the 5 o'clock hires got the same that they did, they complained. And they begin to accuse the owner of unfairness. And they say it this way, verse 12, These last men have worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and he said to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to the last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous, so the last shall be first and the first last? 
Well, that wage dispute didn't turn out the way they normally do. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and to a lesser extent when John tells stories, they record a lot of stories. But not because they are primitive people do they tell stories. Not because they are pre-moderns who don't appreciate a more rational approach. When they're telling you these stories and reminding us of what Jesus said in them, it's telling you something so you can understand God and you would understand it no other way. Your brain is not big enough to absorb it except through a story. So we're going to be able to understand at the end of this story God. So what's this story tell you about God? How does it help you to understand Him? I, I picked out three phrases, and they're all from the owner. The first one is in verse 4, where he says to the, to the laborers that he hires later in the day, I will pay you whatever is right. Whatever is right. He says that for the late hires. The 12-hour people, remember, they had agreed, but these others did not reach an agreement, just trusting him, whatever is right. Now, you can know that the owner did do what was right because of the grief that he gets at the end of it all, at the end of the day, from the people at the end of the pay line who work 12 hours, and they give him all kinds of grief. And we know that he did the right thing like he promised because in verse 13, he says to them and assures them that what he did was right. Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. I'm not hurting you at all. That's his appeal. And that appeal apparently cannot be denied or thrown back in his face. I did you no wrong. I did what was right. He had done what was right. Now, you can, I suppose, question his business sense in hiring the one-hour people and giving them the 12-hour wage. You can question his business sense. You can wonder where his drive to make more profit was. You, you can wonder how this guy expects to stay in business and make big money being so lavish with his workers, too lavish with some of the day laborers, you, you, you can brand him as a fool. You can say he is wasteful if you want to be mean about it, but you can't say he did anybody wrong. And neither has the God of the universe. He's never done you wrong. He's never done anybody wrong. Jesus will say it this way, that he causes good rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He rewards the good people with blessings, but on the other hand, he's not so stingy with the bad people either, is he? He's never done anybody wrong. He freely gives good gifts even to bad acting people, doesn't he? Have you noticed that? That bothers some people, but he does. And it's no different with ungrateful people or people that never tell him thank you. He still gives good gifts. There are plenty of violent people, think about it. There are plenty of thoughtless people. There are plenty of greedy people. There are plenty of God-hating people who get all the air they need. Where do you think that air came from? They get 70 years of good health, maybe more. They enjoy the taste of good food, courtesy of a tongue and taste buds 
that God designed and gave to them, even if they don't like him. The falls at Yosemite and, and the sunset on the Pacific and the joys of seeing your child born and hearing the voice of an old friend after a long time, they can all be enjoyed. And millions of times a day, they are enjoyed by saints, but they're also enjoyed by sinners alike. We believers talk about a righteous God. God is righteous. You know what that means? It means he is a God of rightness. That he's a God who is always being right. He's living right. He's acting always right. He's never being wrong. He's never hurtful or disregarding of anybody on the planet. That's who God is. It's a part of him as much as the way he knows everything and sees everything. That's just the way he is. He's always right. He always does right. Doing right. When God is doing right, it's demonstrating that he loves everybody. Everybody. Well, there's another phrase in verse 6 that helps you to understand God. Because that for sure is our God. This story makes you understand this is our God. He, he loves everybody. And he always does right. But verse 6, why have you been standing here idle? He says to the last hires, the five o'clock people, why have you been standing here idle all day long? And, and when the owner asks that question, he seems a little bit baffled at their inactivity. Why are you standing here idle all day long? Day long, day long, long. He seems to wonder how, standing around all day, they missed his earlier calls because he was there at six and nine and twelve and three. How did you people miss it? Why are you still standing here? He seems baffled that they missed it. They, they failed to get involved, and they failed to get rewarded for their involvement, but somehow they have. They offer this. They say, well, nobody hired us, which tells you there might have been an employment problem. Nobody hired us is a reasonable, natural defense during a tough time when unemployment was a reality, but it, it doesn't work for you and me when God asks us, you know, there are plenty of excuses that we can offer for non-involvement with God or limited involvement with Him, for not serving the poor. We can come up with reasons for not discipling one another, for not helping, for not showing mercy, for not worshiping, for not studying, for not giving, for not talking about Christ to those who need Him, for not being more involved in the life of the body, the church. But it all comes down to what I've noticed for a long time. And that's this, that adults, we adults, once we become adults, adults do pretty much what they want to do. That's the truth. So why are you idle, God says? Why are you not busy for me? Why are you not doing something that he's directing you to do? Because I don't want to. And while we might come up with all sorts of rationales, my schedule is tight. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not good at talking to people about my faith. I get nervous. Or, or somebody else 
will step up and help with the kids' program at church, or other people are better singers, or I don't have time to disciple somebody else, or the poor people at MLK Park, they give me the creeps. You can come up with all kinds of reasons. And while you can come up with all kinds of reasons why we're not involved with him like we should be, there is only one cure for that kind of inactivity, for that kind of non-involvement. Get busy. Get busy. Stop with the excuses and get out into the field now. Because there's still time left to do something significant for God. There's still time to please the Master yet. Now there's another phrase that I think helps us to understand our God here. Verse 15. Also on the lips of the owner, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is mine? It's my stuff. I can do what I want with my stuff, right? I know of a man who wanted a certain model car, but he couldn't find the color he wanted. And so he bought the car, color he didn't want, took it straight to his own shop, and he was good at this, and he stripped it down and repainted it. People said, are you crazy? Brand new car? You stripped it down and repainted it? Well, he's free to do what he wants with his own stuff, right? You may question it. I wouldn't do it, but he did. It's his own stuff. I, 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 I know of people who don't treat their pets like animals. My theory is... And I remind my dog, when he wants to come in and stay a while, don't forget, you're a dog. You go outside. People are inside, dogs are outside. But people treat their pets differently. You've known people that pamper their pets. I've known people that sleep with their pets. Don't raise your hand if that's you, because I think you're weird. <laughs> I've even known people that, they, oh, here, little puppy, and they give them their fork with their, they, they were just eating, and then they give it to the dog. And I could object to that all I wanted, but it's their pet. They can do with their stuff what they want to do. And that's what the owner is. It's not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is mine. Imagine God saying that, because he does. And here is our question of questions. This is it. You understand this, and you have the key to all the other stories that Jesus told. It unlocks them all. You have the key to all of Scripture, if you understand this. You have the key to understanding all of the activity of God in human history. You will understand our God if you understand what this landowner is saying. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is mine? Because God says that. And you will also understand, if you understand this, that we really can never completely ever understand our God. Because he's doing things with what is his. And that is sometimes the only way that we can describe what he's doing. God, what are you doing? You must be doing things with your stuff and your people that I don't understand. You'll understand that we can't always understand. Because it's his stuff. And it's his people. 
And he's allowed to do with it what he wants, you see. He's allowed to do with us what he wants. And sometimes that's the only way we can describe what he's doing. He's doing what he wants with his stuff. But also, he's a God who always does what is right. We saw that. So he's doing things that cause us sometimes to wonder, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? And with what he's doing, it may cause us even to feel pain because of what he's doing. He takes a loved one. God, what are you doing? You know I love them. What are you doing? And it may cause us pain sometimes. But that may be a necessary part of something very much bigger and more involved than we can know that he's doing with his people and with his stuff. And we do know, because he always does what's right, that what he's doing is the best thing that he could do. He says it this way in the Hebrew Scriptures, my ways are higher than your ways. My ways are higher than your ways. And as, as the heavens are higher than the earth, again, so are my ways higher than your ways. But, but look past the inability. Look, look past in this story the incomprehension of those stunned workers, those startled workers in the pay line. And they're, they're seeing that those that work one hour get a full day's wage. And they're stunned by that. Look past that, though, and you'll realize that we all receive from God never what we deserve only. In fact, I'm glad I don't receive from God what I deserve only. But when we receive from God, it's always way beyond that. And we are always in His debt, and He is never in our debt. And sometimes his kindness and his mercy is completely over the top like it was for these one-hour workers. And it blows our mind how good God can be sometimes. So we can never criticize a generous God because he's unjust or unfair, because he isn't. In fact, if, if you join the camp, and it's a large camp of those who are critics of God, then you are in the ridiculous position of having to criticize him, not for unfairness because he isn't, and not because he's unjust because he isn't, but you're in the crazy position of having to criticize God because he is incredibly lavish and he is over the top with his goodness and his mercy and his generosity. How weird to be critical of God for those things. The first workers that worked 12 hours said... When he pays the one-hour people so generously, you can't do that. That's too generous. That's your criticism of God? The only kind of person that would have problems with that kind of generosity would have to be an evil person, a self-centered person, an envious person, a critical person. As we wrap this up, we're going to run headlong into an unfortunate chapter division. You do know that the New Testament originally had no verses, no chapters. Those were added centuries later. 
They weren't part of the original. They were added centuries later in monasteries and studies by some very bright boys who did it for our convenience. But originally, no chapter divisions. And what that means is that this story that we've been looking at that helps us to understand our God, that it is bookended in verse 30 of chapter 19, our chapter 19, with a phrase that is repeated in our chapter 20, verse 16, at the end of the story, and the phrase is, the first will be last and the last will be first. You see it before the story, you see it after the story, telling us that there are only two groups of people here, first and last. Well, the first, those who are those who regard themselves as as deserving of God's favor and generosity. They're like the indignant workers. If you got what we got, then we deserve more. No, that's not what you agreed on. And I did what was right and generous. But the people that are called the first, they are those that regard themselves as, I deserve God's favor, and I deserve God's generosity. But the group called last, the last hired, those that came in with no guarantee, no promise except the goodness of the master, the last, those are the ignorant and sinful who come to embrace Jesus, who, who have nothing else to fall back on except his goodness. I'll trust you. Those people who, who have to trust in a wonderful, almost magical part of God's heart called grace. His favor that we can't earn. That's the last. And for that first group, there is no hope at all. For those that say, I deserve better from God, there's no hope for them. But there's all the hope in the universe for the other group. Look, look at what the master is doing with us in this story. Look, look at what he is doing with all that belongs to him, including you. He's being crazy, lavishly generous toward us. That's our God. You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.